having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, and this is where he twists and pushes, you then who do and teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? And you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. And this hits home. If you understand what this verse means, he quotes Isaiah and he says, For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised, that is, no visible sign of being part of the church, but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision that is visibly part of the church. But you break the law. For the point of it all is this. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward or physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. Not of the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. He ends by saying it is all of this to the praise of God and glory of God. And what is that exactly? The invisibility of the church. That there is an unseen reality to the church. There are those who look like the church, particularly even going back to what Paul's example is with circumcision. The appearance, they have this outward appearance of being part of this covenantal community. Paul says, but no, it's not the one who is outwardly, but the one who is inwardly. That is, there is an invisible community in covenant with God, and that brings him glory and praise. So that's what we'll see. That's how the church is perfectly united. And with a quick remark to say, in spite of present appearances. Does anyone want to agree to that? The church is very united. And then I'm going to say, in spite of present appearances. Because we know the church can be divided, just like the world. And oftentimes, riding the waves of the cultural influences of our world. So I'm going to offer you a story to consider this. Put yourself in this as best you can. Consider yourself in the church. What is the church? Christ's church. 249 years after Jesus Christ, the Roman emperor received a new uh, emperor. The Roman Empire received a new emperor. And his name uh, was Gaius Messius Quintus Trajanus Decius. So if there's any new mothers here and you're thinking of baby names, you're welcome. 
that was free. But the only name that really matters, of course, is Decius at the end. That was the name he was known for, Emperor Decius. His name is infamous, of course, because it's what people spoke of as the Decian persecution. This was the first organized, truly more widespread persecution of the early church in the 200s. One year later, he issued a decree so that everybody in the whole empire would be uh, responsible uh, to sacrifice to the cult of Rome, sacrifice to the empire, the emperor and the empire through the ancient pagan gods. And so what would happen, if you can imagine yourself in a first century, second century context, third century context, the early church, that this is a very real threat upon you. It's something, even in our information age, we can easily identify because I'm sure everybody knows everything I do because my phone's on my hip and I know they're listening to me. No, maybe not. But they could keep track of people very closely because the Roman Empire was so organized that what happened was delegations would be sent to all the cities throughout the empire. And the governor and all the principal leaders of that city would draw everybody and require everybody to attend to a city hall meeting. And it would be read, the decree, and then they would say, all of your names, and if you are members here, a part of this region, you are in a log. Your name is logged. And from this day to this day, maybe two or three days, it was given a window of time, you are obliged to come back to this cult, to this city temple, and you are obligated to offer sacrifice to the gods. See, Rome was waning in their power in this time, and Decius, the emperor, had this plan to open up a whole new golden age for Rome, which was pagan conservatism. He wanted to bring everybody back in the empire to be united again around the old pagan gods. Strict cultic conformity. And so that unity around the old pagan gods in the 200s produced division in the church of Christ. They had to offer to the Capitoline Triad, Jupiter, Juno, Minerva, these old gods. You had an option. And the thing is, they know where you live, they know your name, they know your number. And by the certain point of time, if you are not logged as offering either a sacrifice and being logged as the sacrificati, or at least at the minimum throwing incense and offering incense upon this altar of these primary Roman gods being a thurificati, opening up incense to the gods, you at least had to do that. If you are not logged or itemized in this title, you're dead. That was his plan, to make Rome strong again. We will have very good unity in the Roman Empire, because anyone that opposes us is dead. That's one way to do it. Now, you can see that persecution and what it brought upon the church. It actually divided the church into three categories. And this is the question I'm putting before you this morning. How would we? Yes, the question is you. How would you withstand this kind of persecution? 
Would you be full of the Spirit? Would you be confident and firm? Would you stand? But that's a question we can leave aside. I'd like to ask the question, how would we respond? See, the three options for Christians was either you were a martyr, you simply refused to offer, and you said, Jesus Christ is Lord, and then they struck you dead. Or, you were what is called a lapsy, they called them. You were a fallen one. You quivered in your knees. You were afraid. And you offered. You might not have said, I meant it in my heart, but you did. You offered incense at least, or at least you paid for someone to make a false letter for you that is a false proof or certificate of you signing. Or the third option is that you were labeled as a confessor in the church. And this was particularly pernicious. Some denied the sacrifice and they said, Jesus is Lord. But for whatever circumstance, they weren't killed. Oh, that just wrecked the church. Because now you have some in the church who were willing to die and did not die. They were praised and held and cherished as conservatives and faithful men of God, women of God. And so in the church, you had a division. One of the first great divisions of the old church. You had either the lapses and the confessors. What was called the laxists and the rigorists. But you would know them more or less as the liberals and conservatives. That sounds vaguely familiar. Be of good courage. Whatever is done in history tends to repeat itself. But it divided the church. So the question is, Really, though, I mean practically, in this room. We all saw what happened with COVID. The masks were a show and a half. How would new life bear? Would we divide if we actually were put under a Decian persecution? See... The point of a sermon series like this, and my heart pastorally is, there is a thread in the ancient church that many do not know. It is called the unity of the church, a very powerful doctrine. It's vaguely unknown and given sentimental claps and applause from a distance. But see, there was a man named Cyprian at this time, a bishop of Carthage, in the northern part of Africa. And he saw all the division that was happening between the Donatists, I'm sorry, the Novatians. That is, those were the rigorists. Those were the saying, anyone who lapsed, anyone who offered incense and wanted to be back and reunited to the church and repenting of their weakness. The Novatians said, no. They're rigorous. He said, you will be outside of the church until your final death. Perhaps we'll let you in then but you were not permitted to come back to the church. And so, Novation was an elder in Rome, and he began to start his own church in Rome. And there was a division. It was what we call a denomination. 
21st century evangelical said, hold my Welch's grape juice. I'll show you the vision. Without historical perspective, you don't know how weird everything is. That there was an ancient church that valued unity. That there is a witness to Christ that is lost because we divide over stupid things. God forbid the church in America would ever come against the hard rocks of persecution. Far too busy dividing over music and stupid things. So the hope is to say, let us pull that back and find what was going on when Cyprian wrote a letter called The Unity of the Church in the midst of this crisis. And he said, to the Novatians who were starting their own denomination. He can no longer have God as his father who has not the church for his mother. That is, there's something nurturing and necessary to the church. That if you would claim to be united to the one true undivided trinity and God is your father, then you must have a heart for this church. For it is the nurturing arm that brings many sons to glory. The church is our mother. The sermon series is Mother Kirk. The word Kirk is where we get our English word church. Throughout most of the New Testament, the Greek words for a church or synagogue or ecclesia just means a gathering. This one comes from another word, kirake. Another Greek word, not used in scriptures like the others. But our English word comes from it, and it means the Lord's. That's what kirk means. That's what our English word church means. So actually, the English word church doesn't mean the assembly, like synagogue or ecclesia, the called out ones. The English word church means the Lord's. And if you know that, you already know a lot. And I am very grateful as your pastor to say, it is the Lord's. It is not my church. And it is not your church. If we ever are going to call it a church again, we're going to know what that word means. It means the Lord's. And if you understand it's the Lord's, then maybe you don't have the right to divide it. And schismatic. Cancer that defames the name of God. You see that passage is not in my notes, so I've got to say it now, and I know we got communion, so bear with me. That passage where Paul says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's quoting Isaiah. And Isaiah is quoting to say, the reason that all of the Jews, Israel, was destroyed by Babylon is because of all their lawlessness. That's why they were broken up and destroyed. They could have been a one unifying nation as a witness to the nation of God, the people of God, the covenant of God, for all the Gentile nations to look at and bask in their light and their wisdom and their glory and their truth and their unity. But they couldn't get it together. 
because of their lawless, schismatic, sinful weakness. They were supposed to be a powerful nation. And so therefore, all the Gentiles say, you puny little Israelites, you're nothing compared to Babylon. What is Israel compared to Babylon? What is Israel compared to Athens or Greece or Syria? The name of God, which was attached to that nation Israel, is blasphemed because they are foolish and compared to worldly wisdom. That's the danger of the church. The church in America particularly. What is the church? Who cares what you think? You're all divided and fighting. You have no unity. You have no voice. You have no spine. You don't even know what you stand for. God's name is blasphemed because of you. But here is the church. That we seek by God's grace with this word to fix that. At least for us. That we would say we know who we are as New Life Church. We know we are united. We know we are not our own. By calling ourselves a church, we are the Lord's. And there will be a certain reverence and fear to ever hinting at dividing or trying to break the church. For it is not ours to touch. See, we can have a high view of the church. The point is to have a high view of Jesus Christ. Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church in the gates. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Well, that's a new one. Wow. I've been drinking the same water for about a year, and I guess someone didn't want me to get COVID again. All right. It had a lid, so, right? Germ theory? I don't know. Um, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 1 Timothy 3.15, the household of God is the church of the living God. Can you hear this? A pillar and buttress of truth. That's what the church should be. A pillar and buttress of truth. The fortification, the walls of truth. Paul goes on later in Timothy to write the same Ephesian church. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. There it is. That's the foundation. The Lord knows who are his. We don't have to figure that out. There is an invisible church that cannot be broken, cannot be divided, cannot be corrupted, cannot fail, cannot falter, can't even stumble on its way to celestial glory. That's the church. You build from there to understand. The church is invisible and indivisible. It cannot be divided. Our Nicene fathers have said, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and Son is adored and glorified, and who is spoken of through the prophets. And then right after says, and I believe in one, holy, catholic, and apostolic church. Now do you believe in that? I mean, really? Could you confess that and say, I believe in one church? Well, you have to believe in it. Because we believe in the things that we don't see. Ephesians, uh, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Yes, I believe that there is, inside of all of this visibility of the church, an invisible church 
I don't see it yet, but I believe it. That it is one, it is holy, it is Catholic, it is apostolic. Amidst all the divisions and the tumults of life, there is this church that cannot be broken. And if you value that, it changes the way you see everything in this world. If we confess Jesus Christ to have one body, then there is also one church that is his body. If we confess Jesus Christ to be the one groom, then there is also one bride, which is his church. We know there is only one father, and there is only one mother, which is the church. Christ's body is invisible, and therefore indivisible. And so we see in the text, as we approach in Romans, the invisibility of the church is being exposed in Romans, how Paul is beginning to teach the church that there is an invisible individuality in Romans 2. And there is an invisible institution in Romans 2. See, it's not so much the fact of this judgment that Paul speaks of, that we would not be able to withstand it. If it's not for the church, this whole verse makes no sense as far as having any real hope. He says, when on that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men's hearts. I'm like, excuse me, I don't understand the gospel in that. If the gospel means good news, um, I don't think it's particularly uh, wonderful news to know that God's going to judge all the secrets of my heart. Because those things are, well, they're kind of shameful. Things I don't like to, that's why they're secrets. I don't say them. Uh, they're, they're sinful things I'm not proud of. Why is that gospel that God's going to judge that? Why is it good news? There's an invisible, an individual, impartial judgment of God. He says this. All fall under this impartial judgment. He will render, it says, to each one according to his works. Apart from Christ, all are judged individually. That is, he will render to each one according to his works, individually. And that no one would ever charge God with impartiality, that is, favoritism or special pleading, in the way he judges any of us. He goes on to say, those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness will be wrath and fury. Will be tribulation and distress for every human soul, it says. Every human soul who does evil. That is, not just the human hands, not just the human feet, but that invisible part of us. This is an invisible judgment that is individual and that is impartial. That is, the human soul, the thoughts of the mind, the, in, the inclinations of the heart, the desires, they will be judged. It's an invisible judgment. He will judge us like no one judges us. He will judge us perfectly in partiality and perfectly in all the invisible aspects that no one else knows. That is the judgment that no one could ever say God has been impartial. He has been perfectly fair to do wrong to us, that is to judge us, but also to do good. Perfectly impartial. He goes on to say, there is no impartiality as far as God's rewards for righteousness. Now you can hear this. Like hear this message. The word is saying. If you live righteously. You will have eternal life. As simple as that. Those who by patience. In well doing. Seek glory and honor. And immortality. 
He'll give them eternal life. Glory and honor. Verse 10 says this. Glory and honor and peace to everyone, impartial, everyone who does good. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. That is the remarkable statement that Paul is saying, if you do good works, you simply will be saved. Because God will just judge you according to your works. He's perfectly impartial. And he sees all things. And if you want a good individual judgment from God, you will have it. He will judge you up one side and down the other. And everything good you've ever done will be good. Except for this one warning. Except for this verse where it says, All who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. See, it's a hypothetical. It is hypothetical. That is... There's a person Paul is describing, such a person, a hypothetical person, that if there's such a person that could exist, that would do good, that is all good, never self-seeking. All you have to do to go to hell is seek yourself. That's all that verse is saying. Be of yourself. Be about yourself. Be not about God and his law and his love and others. That's it. Those who are self-seeking will have judgment. But it says... Those who by patience and well-doing seek this. Glory, honor, and immortality. Really seeking glory. I want eternal glory. I want to be honored. And I want immortality. I want not to die. I want not the vanity of my life. The problem is, is to be given eternal life. But see, that hypothetical person, just because it's necessary that we live perfectly righteous lives does not mean it's possible to live perfectly righteous lives. If I'm going to fall down the Grand Canyon, it's going to be necessary for me to be able to jump that far across the whole chasm so that I don't fall and perish. It might be necessary for me to jump that far. But it doesn't imply that it's possible. Oh, it's necessary. If you want eternal life, then patiently seek glory, honor, and immortality. Do good, and you will receive this honor. That's necessary. Of course, it's not possible. It's not possible at all. And so this judgment is perfectly impartial. It says, For God so shows no impartiality. All who sin without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but it's only the doers of the law. Only ones who actually are righteous, actually doing it, actually living perfectly, that's righteousness. Do you see the gospel in all this? Do you see why this man was on the tree for you? Do you see why it is impossible to enter the kingdom of God apart from Christ? For it has to be the doers of the law. Not only the hearers, he said, but the doers. Only doing the law is what justifies and this impartial judgment is even of our ignorance. So he goes on and says, God is perfectly impartial in judging us. In verse 14 he says, When Gentiles who do not have the law, that is, they're ignorant of God's good moral commands, they do not have the law, by nature they do what the law requires. They are a law for themselves. That is, the tape recorder. Francis Schaeffer loved this illustration. All God has to do is remove the imaginary tape recorder from your neck that has been hanging there your whole life. And on the day of judgment, he exposes it and says, you didn't know this was here. But here it is. And he'll hit play. 
and you'll be condemned. He won't open up the scriptures. He won't quote the Ten Commandments. He'll say, you've already had this law written on your heart. With your own mouth, you bore witness to you know what is right and wrong. All the moral statements you've ever made in your life. Everything you've ever said that such and such should do. And he or she should not do. Be a witness to that law that you knew what was right on the heart. And that you yourself didn't do what you said you should do. And you yourself did what you shouldn't have done. Condemned. There it is. The works of the law are written on their conscience. Their conflicting thoughts. Does anyone have this experience? Their conflicting thoughts either accuse them or excuse them. That inter-dialogue without the static is really the whole human existence. Don't you live your life knowing this was, I should be doing this, I shouldn't be doing this, I should be doing this, and I shouldn't be doing this. Paul's saying, you are a law to yourself. Read the scriptures, don't read the scriptures. You condemn yourself by your own natural knowledge of the law. There it is. That pre-accusation is only leading to the final accusation of God's judgment. We were wired for this. We were being prepared for this exam. This impartial judgment will be nothing more than God exposing our inner thoughts and moral dialogue to our own detriment because it is an impartial invisible judgment of us as an individual. There's nothing left but us on our own two feet and our stupid words and everything we've ever done foolish in this life. So the individual is condemned. It says when Gentiles who sin without the law, they will also perish without the law. So if you obey your moral conscience, you know nothing of Christ, the gospel, and you only know about the moral realities of your own mind. And you might even have a few thoughts that excuse you. And of course we know we have many thoughts that accuse us. The fearful thing of it all is verse 12 where he says, all who have sinned without the law, just sinned without the law according to their conscience, will of course perish without the law. Because the law in their mind is sure enough to condemn. So this individual judgment is occurring at an invisible level. On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets. You see? The secrets of men. It is of invisible things. It is of the private thoughts of the mind. It is of all the things that we wish no one would ever know and God sees. It's an invisible judgment. There's a problem, you see, of judging by visible appearances. Now, this is how we do this as individuals. We judge each other based on all these other things. How we dress, how we talk, how we walk, how we smell. I'm trying to think of more foolish things, but those would do. We also judge churches that way, don't we? What's the budget? How cool is that church? What are they doing? How many people go there? All these external things, it's foolishness. See, without knowing what the church is, without knowing that it's all prepared for this day, this day of judgment upon the invisible individual. If you understand that, then you know the church is. 
The church is an invisible institution that is a multiplicity of individuals who have come under the banner of one individual who has actually lived the righteous life. And that everything that the church, that really matters in the church, is unseen. Everything that actually counts goes into this box of the invisible church. We see this. One indivisible church. For they were tempted to judge themselves by external things. For Paul says, for you, if you do not hold to the law, that is, you Jewish people who value yourself, you have this. You have the word of God, this visible word. You read it. You, you, you identify with it. You say, we are people of the word. We are religious people. And then also at the same time, you say, we have this sacrament. We have this thing called circumcision. Right now we have a sacrament called communion. And you take these visible things and you say, we have them. You see. You have and, and he says particularly, yes, but the one who does not have these and obeys the law, Though you have these and you break the law, he himself will condemn you. He is actually the law keeper. Though you have the visibility of this thing called the covenant community. The visibility of this thing called the church, the people of God. The visibility is not valuable like the invisibility. He says, for if circumcision is of value, yes it is, if you obey the law. But if you break the law, he says, circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It's meaningless. He, physic, who, he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law that is actually is living for the glory of God condemns you though you have the written code, the word, and the sacrament circumcision and break the law, the visible stuff. He's pointing them to go straight to the invisible church and say don't move from here until you understand what the church really is. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. But a Jew is one inwardly by a circumcision that is a matter of the heart, wrought by the spirit and not by the letter. That is, it has always been this way. He didn't say Christians particularly. He said the old covenant people of God. Any covenant people of God who have been united to God, the covenant community, the Jews, even down to the Old Testament, with all the temple and the sacrifices and all the bells and all the symbols and all the outward signs, from the very beginning, it has always been this. The one who is one inwardly is actually part of this community. There is an invisible assembly of the people of God. And I submit to you that it is absolutely beautiful that the Lord Jesus loves this church, that it is one, it is holy, it is Catholic, it is apostolic, it is invisible, and it's indivisible. It cannot be broken, it cannot fail. And that is the true church. As we approach communion, I boast in one thing, the PCA as I return from this General Assembly, celebrate its 50th anniversary. Many denominations have suffered and lost a lot of attendance. The PCA is higher than they've ever been. The PCA has approached a budget of $1 billion for only being 50 years old. Around 400,000 members. The PCA plants a church every two weeks. And I only boast in the Holy Spirit for that. Because this is all just a church. But what matters 
is that there is a church that cannot fail. The PCA may fail. It's only 50 years old. But there is a church that will not falter. We've been given this one body, one bread, one cup, because there's only one church. Let us pray for that unity across our nation so that the name of Christ will not be blasphemed by those who claim his name. And for us as a church, so that we would be able to weather any storm as we understand who we are, to be united, to hold the line, to be the church, which is the Lord's. Dear Father God, we ask you, as we come to this table, that it would not be a small thing. That we understand that your name is on the line. You've put your name in these sacraments. You've put your name in this bread and water, uh, bread and wine. You put your name upon us, that we are yours. We are your church. Father, we pray as we approach that if there is any disunity in us, if there is any disunity in our heart toward you, if there is any grievance or sorrow or heartache that is because of defilement and sin, Lord, let us not approach this table inappropriately, but let this be again a reaffirmation that we are the Lord's. Now, please, Lord, be with us and meet with us in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.